Today we have a very special guest on the Tanakh Talks podcast, Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, and we'll be talking about Sefer Shmuel, coming right up. Live from Malone Shfrut, from the hills overlooking Jerusalem, this is the Tanakh Talks podcast. I'm joined here today by Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, who is not only the pioneer of the new, one of the pioneers of the new school of Tanakh study, he is the one who was introduced to the English-speaking world, all the wonderful innovations in Chidushim that have come out of Alon Shvut, the Herzog, what they call the Herzog School, what Rabbi Carmi likes to call the Literary Theological School. Um, welcome, Rabbi Liebtag. It's an honor to have you. Rabbi Liebtag was my teacher um, from afar. I first started receiving his emails. He's the pioneer of email usage of Torah in 93, 94, 95, before I moved to Lone Food and discovered I was living next door to him. And it still took me two years to get the courage up to speak to him. We're here to speak today about Sefer Shmuel. Sefer Shmuel, of course, is one of these, perhaps one of the most fascinating books. It's surrounded, it's enveloped by Shoftim on the left, Malachim on the right. Hundreds of years of history here, hundreds of years of history here. And how many years do you think Shmuel covers? Maybe a couple, half a century, maybe 50 years or three characters, Shmuel, Shaul, and David. So we'll be going in depth, but let's just start with a simple question. What is the book about? Okay. Uh, so first of all, in your introduction, you're making an assumption, which I think is sometimes misleading, where we read what you call Navim Rishonim as Books written like uh, like a trilogy, or actually there's four there, uh, where someone's writing Jewish history in order, first the time of Yeshua, then the Shoftim, and then Shmuel, then Malachim. So if the assumption is these are four different chapters of Jewish history of the first temple period, uh, or from the time of, uh, tem- from after Chumash until the first temple is destroyed, then it's very lopsided. Um, my assumption is it's only by chance that these are the, that we use these four books as our choice of Jewish history. Rather, each book was written independently for a totally different reason than to teach you Jewish history. The rabbis, when they canonized Tzach, they sort of used these books which existed for their own reasons and made a series out of it. But I don't study each book as a, a, a continuing chapter of Jewish history. Yeah. Rather, what you're saying, of course, goes against modern scholarship nowadays since Martin Noth. It's all the Deuteronomists. It's this one long span of Jewish history from Devarim all the way, Deuteronomy yeah. all the way to the end of yeah. and, um, and, Kings. And, and even in the Vulgate, it's, you know, Vulgate doesn't have a book of Samuel. The yeah, Vulgate they have, has they have four sections for uh, Shmuel. It's all one. Kings has four sections. Mm-hmm. It's one big long yeah. book. And once you understand that, that's why there's so many questions. And the books are so complicated and so confusing that the these same... Um, you know, Bible critics have to realize, have to come to a conclusion, there's so many contradictions in these books, there must be multiple authorship and a later redacted bring them together. And uh, Now, my claim is quite different. My claim is that every book of prophecy was written for its first and foremost for its own generation with a very specific and important prophetic goal and purpose. Now, um, I can learn history from that book, but the book wasn't written to teach you history. I'll give you a, a great example, because everyone reads Yeshua as like a book of history. Sefer Yeshua was not written to teach you the history of how the Jews conquered the land of Israel. Rather, there was a prophetic issue at the end of the time period of Yeshua, 
where the people were blaming God. How come we didn't complete the conquest of the land? You promised you would conquer the land for us. And the land's not conquered, as we see in both Sefer Yeshua and in uh, Sefer Shoftim. Right. The land's not complete. And when something goes wrong, you always blame somebody else. So the people are blaming God. And when people blame God, God needs a spokesperson to speak on his behalf. If you read Sefer Yeshua carefully, especially chapter 23, you'll see in his final speech, his key point is, you should know with all your heart and all your soul. If you take a look at chapter 23, verse 14. It says, Not one thing fell short. Everything God said came true. And you repeat it also in the end of chapter 11 and the end of chapter 21. You need to know that everything that God promised, Amisar came true. But what did God promise? God promised, wherever you go, I'll help you. On the condition, you keep my mitzvot. So the book isn't about how we conquered the land. The book is about how God kept his promise to help us conquer the land, should we keep his mitzvot. And therefore, the book goes step by step, what we conquered and how God helped us whenever we took an initiative. And when we didn't take an initiative, we didn't conquer. And then once you understand that, all the problems of contradictory sections and but when you assume this is a normal history book, oh, how can half the book say the conquest was complete and half say it wasn't complete? It's got to be different sources. When you understand that's not the purpose of the book, but rather the book was written, to explain the prophetic purpose, it's a whole different ballgame. Okay, okay, so let's so go, go now to Shmuel. Shmuel. Okay. Especially yeah, yeah. since Shmuel has to straddle at least two generations. Yeah. Three, probably, yeah. is Shmuel, Shal, yeah. David. David. Okay, so I want to... But it's one book. But what you're saying could be three different books. And by the way, there's oh. a fourth character you're, you're forgetting. But he's not really a character. That's God. Okay, well, he wasn't part of the... He's he's from there at the beginning to the end, yeah, yeah. and we'll assume he's but over... He's a key character. No. Well, even Chazal do say that Shmuel writes his book while Shmuel dies, you know... Yeah, that's obviously Shmuel didn't write the book. He can't because, be yeah. that Shmuel, you know... The, it's not like he, he someone finished the last eight lines. Right. Shmuel obviously didn't write the book. The book has um, at least three sources, uh, but there's a prophetic... Um, I'll call it prophetic redactor. We call him the PR. Okay. Right? <laughs> and I want to try to identify... What's the prophetic issue that requires the book of Shmuel? So what is Shmuel about? Okay. Go. So it's not about Shmuel. <laughs> and I don't think Shmuel wrote the book. The book quotes from Shmuel. I think the key prophetic issue, which is something you need a prophet for, is during the first temple period, there is a major problem, or major issue, major controversy within the Jewish people to vote you know, for Baith Yehudi, or the I'm just joking. <laughs> That's what to vote for. But whether uh, the problem was, is the kingdom of David legitimate because there's a split kingdom and what's enough Afkamina what's the difference who's a legitimate king if the kingdom of David is legitimate hence Yerushalayim is the Hamakom HaShuiv Hashem hence that's the only place you can bring Korbanot and therefore everything else is strife so if I accept that David was chosen by God and God wanted David and God chose Yerushalayim then that makes the northern kingdom, at least the temple of the northern kingdom, not legitimate for, for serving God. Now, because there's a split kingdom, right, which was sanctified, which was uh, not sanctified, was um, decided by God. You know, God, Achishiloni, God's prophet, wanted a split kingdom, but not two different kingdoms, but rather, I call it a coalition government, where he wanted to be one religion, and God wanted, it's clear, that wanted everyone still to come to Yerushalayim. I think he wanted David to be like the president and and uh, and uh, Yerovam to be like the prime minister. He wanted to share, let, let Ephraim, or let the ten tribes, run the economy and run the army. A separation of powers. A separation of power. Yeah, more separation really... of power, yeah. And then that's the classic Chazal, where said Ravim didn't want, wanted the whole thing. You know, okay. Remember, who, who's you know, who's going to lead this? 
And because he wasn't totally in charge, he, he, he decided. And therefore, for political reasons, he does put, for political reasons, he does religious reform. That's the famous Chet of Yoravam Ben Yoash. Uh, no, of, not Yoravam, uh, first Yoravam. Ben Nevat. Ben Nevat. So, um, how does that relate to our Sefer Shmuel? Because there's an argument during the first temple period, who's the legitimate kingdom? I need a work of prophecy. I need a Hachran Nevuit. I need a Psach Halacha or Psach Nevoah. That indeed, David is chosen by God. Now, why would people think David's not chosen by God? I can list you a lot of good reasons why people in the northern kingdom okay. would think. Was, if I had a right, if I was on a debate team and I was trying to explain why Beit El is the place to serve God and why Mahut David is not legitimate, I can write a whole paper about why Mahut David is not legitimate, beginning with he was never anointed publicly, hmm. where Shaul was anointed publicly. Okay? He was working with the enemy. He worked with the plishtim against his own people. Right? He's this um, what do you call it? conniving general who goes against his old boss and tries to take power. He steals people's wives. Right? He takes, he, what do you call it? He doesn't like somebody. He wants to take his wife and he sends some guys to get killed. Right. He kills, uh, what's his name? Abigail's husband, Naval, right? and takes his wife. Was, if, there are so many stories about David. He invites Avner as a setup, right? And then has him stamped. Was, Which makes still, you ask the question, right, okay, right. if I'm trying to legitimate David... Why bring up all the dirt? Exactly. Hit, it's, you hit the nail on the head. That was on, on, you know, on one hand, I've always loved these stories. And I, yeah. I always tell my students, you ask me why I believe the Torah and the Tanakh is true, because no other people tells this sort of stories about their leaders, not just yeah. once or twice, but consistently. Yeah, from Abraham on, which is... <laughs> Everybody's... <laughs> A mistake, a failure, and David is, you know, Chazal say, Klalanim Retzet Noef, you know, Megadef, Retzeach, you know, all the horrible terms, adulterer, murderer, there's nothing that yeah, yeah, the rabbis hold yeah, back on David. Yeah, he makes it to Shmonesser, doesn't he? He makes it to the, the Sukkah, he makes it. Makes we, everywhere, yeah. We like David. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we seem to... Someone with that record nowadays wouldn't get, couldn't even teach in, in elementary school. We would hope. <laughs> we would hope. Now, because of that issue, right? Now, the book isn't coming there to teach you the dirt. The dirt's out there. It's only stories about David are there, and they're and they're amplified by the people trying to delegitimize Mahut David. Now, because all those stories are out there and flying around, and there's all these claims about Mahut David is not legitimate. I'm sure Mahut Shlomo is not legitimate because look who his mother was, and Shlomo in his whole kingdom. God never wanted them, right? And this was all, you know, political. And therefore, if I'm a citizen in the state, in the land of Israel during that time, and I'm torn of who is the legitimate kingdom, is Yerushalayim the only place to serve God or not? Is Mahut David legitimate? Right? Right. No, or or to, are the Kohanim still Kohanim, or was it okay that every Bukhar knows? There's a lot of reasons to say, why can't I daven my shtibol? What's wrong with Abodat Bamot? It makes so much sense. There's so many reasons, and the list, the main list of reasons is why David's Mahut is not legitimate. Therefore, our book is a book whose primary purpose is to clarify once and for all to the people that from a prophetic point of view, God accepted David despite all these problems. And therefore, okay. in light of that, I'll explain the whole book. Okay? And right. that now, I'm not saying it doesn't come to teach you the dirt. It comes to counter the dirt. Because the dirt's out there. Now, if you, the book was written at a time when all these stories are well known. So it's not that how come I'm bringing these stories up. The stories are known, and therefore it's written for the generation who's questioning how can Mahut David be legitimate. 
Therefore, the first source, the first unit, is going to be the first seven chapters, which um, clarifies Shmuel was a Navi, Neman Nashem. No, Shmuel was a bona fide Navi. Shmuel, everyone accepted Shmuel. What Shmuel says is what God said. But actually, there always seems to be a contrast throughout the book. You can't have Shmuel without thinking of what he replaces. Uh, the Eli, yeah. The book begins with Eli and his children, mm-hmm. and one wonders what sort of corruption, you know. Get the wonders. Just look nowadays. What's right. <laughs> the At the time it was written, that there seems to be an allusion to, you know, that these it tells stories of, you know, it's one of these funny things I've always, you know, point out when it describes that they take other people's women and they take mm-hmm. the meat, and it says. Not only Rashi says there, you know, the rabbis in their famous page in Shabbat, when they say, let's all, you know, it didn't really happen this way. It didn't really happen this way. Rashi here says, when they talk about B'nai Eli, he feels no need to, to cover the rabbis back. are giving Midrash, but I'll tell you what Shabbat is. They're horrible people. They take the meals when they take the meat, they're, and everything that they do wrong. And Shmuel is set up as this antithesis. Yeah, because because the book has to explain, Rashi has to go, why why is God so angry allowing the Mishkan to be destroyed? God has to be really angry right. to destroy the Mishkan and Shiloh. So it can't be just because of, you know, little, it can't be misdemeanors, it's got to be felonies. Okay. Now, now, let's go back to our, okay. the first seven chapters. And clarify. of course, this would advance your thesis because the Mishkan is located in the Northern Kingdom, yeah. in Shiloh. Yeah, no, in other words, I would think that Shiloh, if, if there could be Mishkan and Shiloh, I have to show that Shiloh was temporary and not permanent. And God was behind this destruction. Correct. Now, um, then there's another issue. Whether, before I talk about who's the king, does God really want the king? Now, you would think that's the topic of Sefer Shoftim, and I think Sefer Shoftim was written to answer that issue specifically. But in Sefer Shmuel itself, in chapters 8 through 12, there's another unit, which begins with the people asking for a king. Shmuel thinking it's a bad idea. And God explained to Shmuel, even though their intentions are bad, there's still, God wants a king because God wants a nation. And even though people are asking for the wrong reasons, God says, here's an opportunity. Don't miss this opportunity. And your job is not to give them a king and for you to retire, but give them a king and you assist to make sure that kingdom develops in the right direction. So now, Shmuel gives them a king uh-huh. and that king is Shaul. Shaul, appointed by, by no, it's... Agreed to by God. Agreed a a northern again, a Binyamin, a, non, a northerner, a king, yeah. not Davidic king. And and, and he's is Shaul set up to fail? Um, is is um could Shaul succeeded or what would the what, have is what, it, can you envision? Are we, okay, put it this way: was creation destined to fail before the flood? It's the same words, isn't it? Nihamti, Yasiti. In other words, the Chumash is using a lot of wording in Sefer Shmuel, which is very similar to the flood story, where. Sometimes it didn't have to happen, but it was bound to happen. Certain things are bound to happen. Like mm-hmm. teenagers, you know, talking back and getting, you know, doing bad things. But it's part of growing up. But the same thing, the first generation was bound to fail coming out of Egypt. Didn't mean it had to fail, but likely to fail. Um, now, the, the um, what, 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 be, sending up the kingdom is complicated. Right. Especially when asking for the wrong reasons. Nothing had happened. The alternate which is interesting because Shmuel doesn't tell the actual reason they're asking. At least in chapter eight, in chapter eleven, it tells that the, what's a motivates the request, and this is actually the way the Dead Sea Scrolls re, re actually plays. You know, Lego with the pieces. Mm-hmm. 
that this is a request is based on the attack from Ammon of Nachash. Um, oh, it says so much more. Yeah, 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 yeah. right. By, by, you saw that Nachash Melachim was coming, and you said, Lo, Kimelachim no Chaleinu. So there had to be something there also. But the reason the people asking for a king is very simple. The fire department system of the Tamil Shultim is, isn't working. But Israel, politically, security-wise, economically, has hit rock bottom in the beginning of Sefer Shmuel. There's no doubt about it. Right. The whole metal industry is controlled by the Plishtim. The Plishtim are the first um, existential en- um, threat to Israel's existence since the time, since the beginning of Sefer Yoshua. It's the first time we don't have local enemies, but rather an- another nation has come into the land and trying to take over like we did like a hundred or so years earlier. The Plishtim come in, they take the coastal plain, they take the lowlands, they infiltrate into Binyamin already, into right. the highlands, and therefore they pose an existential threat and it's just not working. No, the existing system can't continue. So the existing system can put out yeah, be, Shmua, maybe, fires that appear, yeah, yeah. but not it's, the existential. It's a fire department, but there's no... And therefore, the people from the bottom up want a king. Now, their main motivation is for security. Take, compare that to uh, early Zionism. Why do people want a Jewish state? Because it, had life in Europe, in Ukraine, in the pale, been excellent in Europe, in, in Russia or in Europe, who would have cared about a Jewish state? Right. But, the, look, the at the Ameri- realize, look at the American and the, or even the British Jewish yeah. community at the time. Yeah. That's where most of the anti-Zionist rhetoric was yeah, from. Who so. needs one? But when when your back's to the wall and life is just lousy, and if you don't do it, if you do nothing, you're not going to exist in another generation or two. Mm-hmm. You got to do something. When people look around, like we're constantly losing to our enemies and our borders are just shrinking, we got to do something. What do they have that we don't have? They have an organized government. They have an army, and to have an army, you need a king. Now. But it's interesting, the Torah doesn't say you have to have a king. It says you have to have judges. It says, should you ask for a king, then pick the proper king, the one that God will guide you and help you choose. Uh, that's because I compare it to like uh, the mitzvah to get married. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. But there might be a commandment to get married, but if you don't want to get married, there's no commandment. You, don't, you shouldn't get married because you're hired to get married. If you're not in love with someone, if you don't want to get married... Okay. You don't get married. I'll get in trouble for that. <laughs> but I shouldn't get in trouble for that. <laughs> you shouldn't. Okay. <laughs> um, but the same idea. You can't command a nation to set up a kingdom. You have to have a little political desire. The people have to want a kingdom. That's, you, you can't command the people to set up a state. The, and yet, so the, that leads to the, the question, new, why does Shmuel react so negatively to the proposal? Ah, because... Ah, so. Because he thinks they're asking for all the wrong reasons. For the same reason all the rabbis in Europe were against the Zionist state. That's why I'm using that analogy. Because they're asking for the wrong reasons. They want a reason because they don't need God. So it's, well, what's been happening? Every time things have been, been bad, how do they get some help? Well, they do true of gas, They pray to God. And God sends some Moshiach. And that's how Shmuel sees things. That's what does Shmuel see? And that's why Sefer Shoftim is so related to the section of Sefer Shmuel. Because well, Shmuel is actually the, the perfect shofet. If you look at the words used in chapter 7 of Shmuel Aleph, yeah. all the words, they cry out, yeah, Moshiach, yeah, yeah, all yeah. the words of, yeah. he is the perfect well, shofet. shofet. Plus, he gets the people to do real tshuva at the end. I mean, right. that's, that's chapter 7, where he gathers the people, the people in mitzvah, and they do real tshuva. Not, not by tishkot ha'aras afterwards, but he gets the people to root Shuvah, and if Shmuel could live forever, maybe I would be fine. Right. But Shmuel can't live forever. And, and he his son, off, off the and his sons, like every other father-son relationship in Shmuel, there's never a good father-son relationship. Because, because the leader is so busy helping the people with the same time for his own family, as people in education well know. <laughs> that's true. With the strange reversal, we'll go back to our Shaul and Yonatan, where Shaul is actually the failure. Yeah. And Yonatan's and, even better. Yeah. And Yonatan is, should 
really could have been yeah. king and would have been very popular choice and possibly could have done a great job. So, um, so the the um, uh, so what happened? Shmuel was against it for good reasons, but God has to explain to Shmuel, "You're right. They're asking for the wrong reasons, but at least they want to. At least they're politically mature now for a nation. And your job, like Rav Cook said, flow with it. Don't fight the early Zionists. Work with them. And and we call that. I call that." Um, first, you have to have a vision of a nation, and then you can have a nation with a vision. It's you need a nation with a vision, right? But before you can have a nation with a vision, first you have to have the vision of the nation, and therefore it goes in stages. And first we have to establish a nation, and therefore God tells Shmuel, and that's the last line of chapter twelve in Shmuel Aleph, which I think is key. Ki ho'il Hashem God tells Shmuel, give him a king, and Shmuel tells the people, why is God giving you a king, even though you you said you finally say no king? Remember. Right. When God brings, when He brings the thing, oh, He says, no, it's okay to have a king, but because Kihoel Hashem God wants a nation. Doing nothing wrong, right, doesn't do anything right. So right, there's a danger in having a king. There's danger in going to university, but you right. never get educated. Therefore, there's dangers in a lot of things. There's dangers in setting up a state, but there's also great potential in having a state. And therefore, what's the job of the of the navi now? Not to run the country, but to make sure the country that hopefully is being run now by this new king, will go in the right direction to give a vision to that nation. So and now we have a redefinition, not only of the role of the leader, but also of the spiritual advisor is now, yeah, has now become the advisor and no longer yeah. the central focus. And, and the job of the Navi is not to make sure that the king's uh, palace is kosher right? and the king's tefillin or whatever, and doesn't have any mistakes in it and that he, you know, he has cautious about, you know, uh, you know, how many days, whatever it is. That's not the job of the Navi. That might be the job of the Kohen, what Korbans are bringing things. But the job of the Navi is to be a member of the government, but sort of the moral vice, almost like the Supreme Court type of mm-hmm. porn, like nowadays, like the press, if it was a really good press, mm-hmm. to make sure that the country is going in a direction that sanctifies God. And this guy will be the Torah. Sometimes there's a lot of questions. It's not telling something you're doing something wrong. Sometimes the king, what's the right thing to do? He has to ruin the Tumim sometimes. Sometimes the king needs an advisor. You know, what what policy should we use? Do we, do we attack this nation? Don't we attack this nation? You know, how do we how do we balance our budget? What are our priorities? And right. therefore, now, what's the biggest danger now? Now that we have a king, the biggest danger is a king who is successful. Because the only time that people turned to God during the time of the Shoftim was when things were bad, and people davened, got it, and then okay. people God saved them. Oh, that kept people from right. in general. They don't have trouble. When did people come to Shul? Remember. For Kaddish or Kiddush, when, when someone's ill, when someone's bad, or for some big right. event, but usually in day-to-day life, people don't turn to God only when they need Him, which is a terrible thing in Judaism, but that's a, a sad Human reality. nature, human, human nature. God wants a nation that's always thinking about God. Now, the biggest danger, again, is if we have a king who is successful, wins all the battles, then the people will never turn to God. In fact, who are they going to put their hope in? In the king. That very king. And, yeah, okay. and that's... That, that was that was Shmuel's greatest worry. Therefore, what's the solution? One solution was no king, but no king, no nation, no nation, no nation sanctifying God. That's the whole goal of Hamash. Right. On the other hand, have a king who leads the nation away from God. We're in big trouble. And the biggest problem is a king who gets all the credit. That's great. And then who needs God anymore? We have our king. And you believe in the state of Israel? Not the state of Israel. You believe in the in the king? I'm just joking. Right. Okay. 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 <laughs> um, okay. Therefore, what type of king do I need? I need a king on the one hand who is successful, but knows how to attribute his success to God, okay, and get that message down to the people. 
And therefore, the kavod of a gemelech has to be the kavod of Hashem. And that's going to be the key failure of Shaul. Because Shaul is a great king. He puts together an army, he puts Israel back on the map, he wins great wars. He is super successful. Now, you only find that when you read he is also, the line. He's also, as you, I mean, he's also very much, unlike David, who is building himself a palace or building himself the trappings of a permanent army, mm-hmm. he also seems to maintain a level of modesty, humility about himself on an individual level. It could be. It, it's hard to tell that for sure, but he definitely, he doesn't go on these big building projects like right. later in Shlomo will. But the question is, what's the purpose of those building projects? Now, but he gets the army started. He's getting things moving. Now, what we don't find by Shaul, that we do find by David, and that's the key difference, is Shaul makes no effort to bring the Aron and the Mishkan back together again. In fact, this, the, the city with the Mishkan is a Nobel Kohanim, for political reasons, he'll wipe out the city. Mm. The Mishkan is not at all at the center of Shaul's kingdom. His kingdom is Givat Shaul. That's where everything's happening. The Mishkan is neglected during that time period. The Aron is neglected. It's collecting dice and carrot Right. When David becomes king, that's his top priority. He brings, he brings, he unifies the country, you know, moving his capital to Yerushalayim. He brings the Aron to Yerushalayim, wants to build the Mikdash in Yerushalayim. And the biggest difference, the, the key difference between David and Shaul, Shaul is a great king, politically, security-wise. He puts Israel on the map, but he doesn't know how to attribute that to God properly. Where David, in front of God, is a nobody. And David, his entire kingdom, on a national level, he attributes everything he does to God. Now, the topic, that topic is only seen a little bit in Sefer Shmuel. You can't miss it when you read Tehillim. You can't miss it in Divrei Amim. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's, we learn that from different books. Our book is not about that. Our book is not why God picked David. David's Shul. very circumspect yeah. in, Shul, yeah. you know, in Shmuel, yeah. what he now, says. He's I, not a, yeah, I need to know, so therefore in chapters 8 through 12... I need to know that God wants a king, despite all of its problems, because he wants to have a nation. And God, we have to explain why Shaul was wrong, not wrong, was meant well. It seems but, like in chapter 11, he is the right choice. He does a good job, and then... He, he gets off to a good start, but what's his condition? On the first battle, it's got to be clear that God's doing the fighting. And he doesn't get it. Okay. I'm going to bring the korban. He, he doesn't... God puts him on a difficult test. But he says, I want to make sure that, you know, you're going to win a battle... I want to make sure the very first battle, like Yericho, very similar. The first battle is God's battle. And therefore, the, God purposely makes them wait for seven days. That's uh, chapter 13 yeah. now. Yeah, chapter, yeah. The, right. the first the, battle the, is going to be The first great. offensive yeah, battle yeah. as opposed to... Now, we, at the end of chapter 14, we find about the tremendous successes of his, of his conquests. Way, way, right. way beyond anyone ever dreamt of. He puts... He, all, all around the, he, he secures our borders from all sides. He's great. And David, in his eulogy, we see... It was remember he didn't dress the women. It means he gave them uh, financial security. They could buy expensive jewelry and nice dresses. Remember how my Bishkam Shani and Shaul put Israel on the map in the modern day terminology. But the problem was his kavod was the most important thing. And the best example of that is later when when Shaul when David is dancing in front of the Aaron when he brings it to Yerushalayam and Bichab but Shaul. Right, right. Angry. The, change, the change of the name. She's no longer. Yeah. She's back Shaul. to being now, a daughter of Shaul. So, why? Because, and that's what David says. That's the difference between you and your father. In front of God, I'm a nobody. By me, the most important thing, the message I'm giving to my nation is, God's at the top of the pyramid. Your father didn't get that. You were. She was educated in Britain. Royalty doesn't dance down in front of the people. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And David's different. 
You know, it's a different way of looking at the kingdom. If you follow the story of Amalek also, the main problem is not taking from, it's not because he didn't kill women and children. It's not because it, he wasn't that crazy right wing. Right. Yeah. But rather, his kavod, remember, kabdenina. He's, he's celebrating this. You know, he's sure he's doing the right thing, Shaul, with Amalek. He's making he's making a celebration, but I don't think he lies. When Shmuel comes to him and he says, says he's, he's sure he did the "What right are you thing, doing?" Yeah. He says, "Hakimoti Dvar Hashem." I've done yeah. what God said, and, and, and these korbanot are for their korban shlamim. But what's why? Why does he keep Agag alive? For the same reason he keeps the cattle alive. He doesn't keep the tzom because he cares about the tzom. He cares about his tummy. But the people are by Achmoel says Al Shaul Val Metavatzon. They don't care about the sheep. They right. care about wasting all that great meat. Okay. In the same way, Shaul has no intention of leaving Agag alive. I think it's a totally wrong reading. What Shaul wants to do, why kill him in battle, privately, I can bring him, like Brave, the end of Braveheart, if you know. Right. I can bring him up and make a national gathering and kill him in public. Okay. And who's going to do the killing? Shaul was going to kill his enemy king in public. So Agag. why does Shmuel To minimize that? damage. Because well, that's exactly what he says. He says, Right, yet Shmuel is the one who... Yeah. Because is Agang being killed because he's a lousy general and I'm a better general? Or because he's an enemy of God? Right. And therefore, when Shmuel comes and says, give me the sword, give me Agag, what does Agag say? What's that mean? He knows he's dying. He knows right. he's about to get killed. He wasn't being saved for his life. He says, he was hope. he was... Under, his understood was he's going to be killed publicly by his arch enemy Shaul, his other general, right? And that makes him look bad. Now I'm being killed by the Navi. For of course he's a Ganav. He's a Malik. He's stealing, you know, the robbing right. people down in the desert. That's he's an enemy of God. And therefore, when Shmuel kills him, he's killed for religious reasons. Therefore, okay, I'm allowed. I, I know I'm a great general. I'm just being punished because right. I, I know I'm rotten. He doesn't claim to be a Tzadik. Okay. And therefore, so let's go back to our, our book wise, our book. Setting. My claim is is that um, chapters eight through twelve establish that God does want a king with his problems, and then I have to accept Shaul was king. But the two stories in chapters in in chapters thirteen and fourteen, the first battle, right, where he doesn't listen, and then with Amalek, right, they're lopsided. Those are the only stories I find about about what he does wrong. I have stories why he's unchosen. That's what's important. I need to accept. Indeed, he was chosen. He was anointed by God, but I need to know why he was unchosen. And that's the topic of the book. Okay. Why he's unchosen. And then in light of that, I need to know why David was never anointed publicly. That's the biggest problem. How come David is never anointed publicly? Now, how do we know David was anointed? Because we have Sefer Shmuel. We're but, reading chapter 16, it, where, but even but Shmuel himself... But he was anointed... Even in, Shmuel himself is engaged in just subterfuge. I'm, and God tells him to engage in the uh -huh. subterfuge of, you know, bring a korban, bring a... Mm -hmm. You know, bring um, you which, know, which is so cool because that same thing what Avshalom does later to him in the second half of the book. Whatever right. Avshalom is, I'm going to bring a korban with Hebron, right? The, and that starts the uh, you know the his rebellion. So here the rebellion against Shaul begins with a bring a korban, you know, lying for religious reasons. So the the that's he's anointed clandestinely, right? In the family, and even the family doesn't accept it. Right? Because right. They, they say well, this old rabbi is coming in, you know, nothing, and. My claim is that Shaul never accepts the nevoah of Shmuel, that he's losing his kingdom, because he's God's gift to the country. No, he might make bad, but there's no one else who can be prime minister. I mean, no one else can become king. He's the greatest. Right. And therefore, this old rabbi says, you know, you got to go. Forget it. It's for the sake of Am Yisrael. And it can't be David, because David, he is sure David is, is no good. He's working for the enemy. 
David is the big... Now, I finally establish a kingdom. If a young general starts a rebellion and makes his own little militia, he's the biggest enemy, not to right. democracy now, but to the monarchy. And therefore, he's public enemy number one. He's Mori Bamachut. The same way Ben-Gurion, when he's starting up the state, but, he but, can't have... Menachem ben, ben could be the greatest guy and used to be his great help, but... You can't bring in your own private ship right, with private right. arms. Yeah. You can't do yeah. that. And therefore, know? Shoal as Mamlacha, and therefore, you got to get rid of David. And he's sure that he's right. And he, does, he never accepts the Nevoa. It's, it's bugging him in the back of his head. He finally realizes it the day before he dies. That's the story with uh, Balak Dov. It takes him to go to a necromancer to... And that, that's, that story is full of irony, which is great. You know, it's, right. That's, that's the whole share. Now, I have to say we have a couple of minutes left, so let me get the rest of the book now. So let's go to David. Okay. How does... Yeah, now. How, David, has already say, you know, that David compared to Shaul on an individual level is not... Nobody close. Nobody Shaul, close. Yeah. Shaul's a great man. David has so many flaws that are mm-hmm. evident from the, you know, the Batsheva story only comes back, and then you reread the Avigail story. The Avigail story, you don't, you it, see it. It doesn't look good. Yeah. It doesn't look yeah. good. Yeah. And it, but then when you read Batsheva, you realize, because when Chazal starts to see this sexual tension between David and Avigail, you, and in fact, he does marry her afterwards, yeah. and she's flirting with him. Yeah. So now let me explain the problem. Yeah. Of, now, if this book is the biography of David, or the story of David, he looks really bad. But if this is the book that's coming to counter all the bad stories about David, then that explains why it's so lopsided. In other words, the real story of David, his life was way better. But that's not the topic of the book. In other words, that, that was my opening right. point. When we read this book, this is the story of King David. This is the story of his life. This is Jewish history. So we have, half of, we have 15 chapters of David just running from Shaul. Yeah. Now, now, now there's, that's a unit. That unit I attribute right. to the Navi God. My claim is that the first 16 chapters are Shmuel or the Tamidim of Shmuel, right. because the protagonist is first Shmuel and then Shaul. And that means a side character. Right. right. Starting in chapter 17, which is literally a whole new unit, now it's a new literary unit, it's a new prophet writing, it's God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the story of the Mavak, the struggle between Shaul and David. And the whole point throughout the story, you can't miss it, is that the reason for David's success is because of God. Right. Words, David is always looking out. At the last minute, he's looking out here, looking out there. He's got he, he's he's got ruach. That's for sure. It's coming. It's coming to support what Shmuel says in chapter sixteen. Ruach he Hashem almost gets arrested. He almost gets found in the cave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He almost gets yeah. caught. And what's the reason? That's the dual goes out. There's always a technical reason, but God's behind this. He's just looking out, and God's watching over him. Right. God's making sure that nothing goes. God's protecting him at the last minute, and God's guiding him, and God's not letting him make mistakes. No, he's not letting. Interesting. Him. Yeah. Okay. Then there's. Yeah. Do I go? Do I go to war against all of Naval? He's ready to go to war with all yeah, of Naval. Yeah. Yeah. Another example would be, um, what's the? No, what he does in the cave. What's the greatest thing in the cave? He almost kills Shaw when he's ready he holds to. Holds himself back, but and right. he has an argument with his men. That's what I mean. That they're saying, his men are saying, God's telling you kill the guy, right? Right. And God, David sees God's testing me, and which is great. That that's what part of David's greatness. You see behind the lines of the story. It's um, fascinating how we're always looking to opportunities. This must be what God wants. And you have yeah, to yeah. be, you it know. It be a high moral thing to say, you know, maybe God's testing you. Maybe he doesn't want that. Right. He wants to check if you're going to make the right decision. So Shaul um, dies rather ignobly, and at the end yeah. of Shaul. Um, Shaul is a great hero. It's just, it's, it's a mamasha tragedy what happens to Shaul. Right. But the topic of the book is that David's rise to power was not because he's conniving and sly and tricky. God wanted him, because that's a book of prophecy. That's why it's in there. 
Because it's telling you all these stories that looks like David's working for the enemy. That's the biggest problem in, Shmo, in, Shmo, in the end of Shmo Aleph. Right. He's working for the enemy. He goes to war against his own people. He almost goes yeah. to war. Achish, he's, he, he's yeah, like, he's, and again, God protects him. Yeah. And, and Achish, you know, Achish sees him as his right-hand man. I mean, he's fooling Achish, so don't be surprised if the people of Israel think he's what's called a mashtab. He's working for the enemy. Right. Yeah. So, of course, how could this guy become king? In fact, when Shaul dies, with the exception of Yehuda... Uh-huh. The rest of the people are follow more willing Avner. to... Avner, people like the top general. Avner was this great general, and they follow Avner. Right. Now, David is shrewd enough to bring Avner with him. And then, you know... Now, people think that David set up Avner. That looked really bad. Right. Therefore, he gets his whole eulogy. And you know, I need the book to explain that David... You know, I can take all those stories and see David as this conniving, you know, politician. Right. Everything's getting to power. Like modern-day Israeli politics. And I need a book to tell you no... There was, when David did things are wrong, he did tshuva, and God accepted his tshuva. He's a man of tshuva, but certain things look really bad that really weren't so bad. Mm-hmm. Remember, killing, killing the, give, the, um, the descendants of Shaol because of the Givonim complaining? You know, the Rav made Perachat Aleph and Shmuel Ben? Well, I'd like to know how you explain it, because I know I've been to enough shirim. Um, I've tried to give the shir, I can't. I've seen it Yoni, was, I've seen Yoni stop in the middle of Yemeyun and uh-huh. give up. I've seen Rav Medan throw up his hands with this uh-huh. book. You know, the only person worthwhile was Ritzpah. The the whole story in chapter 21 in the second book, um, where they hand over, he hands over kids to yeah. be killed. What's it look like? It looks like he's killing off, you know, the enemies, his, you know, the, the other monarchy. Which everyone, that's the normal thing to do. I need a book to tell you, no, that was God's decision, not David's. So does that not create a moral problem for God, in your opinion? I mean, that's 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 if that's your question, you know, isn't there more problem killing the right. seven nations? That's, it, the assumption of the Torah is God's just. We don't understand why. Right now, the, for example, I know what, Rabbi Dan tries to say that what they Charles did, kids are their generals, and he may have led they since they fought they against the Gibbon. No, we made a treaty with the Gibbon name. Shaul mistreated the Gibbon name. He and his family. That story happened much earlier. How they mistreated right. the Gibbon name, and there was a Rabbi early on. Of and course, God, the Givonim had betrayed the covenant first, and you didn't say that. Well, it says that the Plishtim were, at least I'll give you the Rabbi Don approach, which yeah. is the Plishtim are located in Givon, that they had, as it were, switched sides. So again, it's the Rabbi Don trying to find a natural explanation. I just think that Givon for, is right next to Givat Shaol. When I, when I my, my tribe is Benjamin, and that's my capital area, um, and I have these local people living here, I got to get rid of them. Right. So you treat them like dirt. Right? And, you, and and it, it says so because he mistreated the Gibbonim. And there's a logical reason why he mistreated the Gibbonim because of real estate in the area. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make it, you know, you write that not a good word, but he wanted to get rid of um, to get rid of the Gibbonim from the area. And he broke the treaty and didn't treat them properly. And we're supposed to take care of the gear as long as he's, you know, works right. with us. We broke that treaty. And therefore, for more reasons, God is angry. And the whole people, the people go with this. And therefore, there's a, there's a famine. And therefore, God says, you want to give on him, ask to give on him what they want. And to give on him, want, have, have a, you know, an issue with the house of Shaul. Okay. And God says, okay, let them decide who to take. And they take. And the David saves one or two of them in the end. But now, I, why is that in the book? That's my question. Why bring up stories that look bad? But those stories are there. And it looks like David is, again, going against his own, his own, his own master. He says, no, that was God. Now, if you accept the book, if you accept prophecy, you're fine. Right. Now, I can read, read this academically and say, no, it, this is written by, you know, this is written to Metaher Esherit's kind of idea. But we don't hold that. We, this is Canaanite. This is a right. book of prophecy. And I'm just saying there's the need. There are so many reasons why the people in the northern kingdom are trying to delegitimize Mahut David. 
And there's all these stories. I need a book that clarifies the issues. One, what Debbie did wrong. Indeed, he did wrong, but he did Shuba for. That's the story with Debbie and Batsheva. And, and well, the aftermath even, of that. Even, even with the Shuba, the aftermath is... It's still sad. You you'll pay for it. But, but right. despite that, God accepts him. He accepts his Shuba. And he has to pay a few price for it. But he remains king. Because we need a Mahfut like that. It's a goal in life also about learning from your mistakes. God doesn't expect you to be perfect, but he tries, you have to try to perfect. You can learn from mistakes and grow from them. Um, David Shuba is much stronger than Shaul's Shuba. When Shaul says Khatati, he doesn't mean it. He says, Rabbi, get off my, you know, get off my case. He, says, he tried three okay. times saying, I'm, I'm right. Okay, Rabbi, Khatati, I'm sorry. Now can I make credit card? Now, right. now come back and bow down with me. He's just giving him lips. His Khatati is quoting Paro word for word, isn't he? Mm, Remember? Khatati, Avoshufi, no, come back. Right. Let me go back. It's not by chance he's quoting Pharaoh. Who's about as sincere as Pharaoh was. Whereas David is Khatati Lasha. And 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 not not just the words, but his reaction. He's he's what's called Nidash Sabrochan. He's like he's finished. He realized when the feeling you've done something terribly wrong and you're not and you can't bring it back. And that makes him passive. That cost that passivity costs him costs the that leads to the building of a shadow right. later on. There was there's no doubt that all the stories um from chapter nine on, especially in chapter eleven through through twenty you know, they're all those terrible Amnon and Tamar and, and the whole thing with Absalom and everything is a result of his passivity, which was a result of the sin of David and Bathsheba and his tshuva. Okay. Yeah, that was the problem there. All right, so okay. we've covered the basic theme of the... We've covered the basic theme of the book. The, the, what you've argued is that this is to... Uh, yeah, so let, let me finish quickly the key units. So I see the unit, starting from chapter 17, is how David rises to power. Okay. And that's sort of rise to power, seeing the hand of God behind these events. And he's not this conniving general, but rather he's it's dedicated not to God. Luck, it's, it's, actual, it's God. It's the it's hand God. of God. It's, right. that's, it's coming to explain what Shmuel said, Ruach Hashem Ra'ah. Left right. Shaul and Ruach Hashem Tova um, was with David. To the point of, uh, and then the story of, um, you know, you know, after with the Shmoshit and everything, and with, with this with Rechab and Bana, because I'm not going to become king by, by people like cutting off other people's heads and things like right. that. And then... Chapters 5 through 8 are the most important because here we see his kingdom. That's the key difference. When he becomes king, moves his capital from Hebron, not to the border, between B'nai Le'am and B'nai Rachel, to Yerushalayim. Okay. And on top of that, what does he do? He wants to, he brings Aaron to Yerushalayim. He writes Tehillim, he starts singing God's songs. I think most importantly, he beats the Tlishim. Yeah. I mean, and he, they disappear yeah. for hundreds yeah, of years. From Melita, but, but he attributes all of his success to God. Right. In and trouble, having done so. Not he, only in trouble, but also when things, we're not in trouble. That's what's so beautiful about Tehillim. He just doesn't turn to God when we're in trouble. He turns to God even when we're not in trouble. And he dedicates his entire national existence. And the key line, which I have to end with, is the end of Parachet. We talk about all the, there's a unit from Parachet to Chet. Right. You know, in um, in chapter eight, in chapter five, it ends with he, David was um, in the end of chapter eight, and right before we have his cabinet came by David does justice and righteousness to his nation. That's the key difference. And that's he the takes phrase his that kingdom. That, that, those two words, Mishpat and that's Brishit, because bottom line, David as a leader is able to take the theme of Torah. The theme of being a Mamlechi Kohen Begoy Kadosh, the themes of Sefer Brishit of why we're chosen, he's able to translate that politically to create a nation doing Tzedek Mishpat. Read Isaiah chapter 1 and read Yemriel complaining about Machut David. The whole reason Machut David is chosen because we're running a nation with Tzedek Mishpat. That's why he's in Shmon Esrei. 
Mm-hmm. Not because just he did a bunch of because he knows what the meaning of a Jewish nation is. And we want Mahut David coming back. I want a king who realizes that the purpose of the kingdom is a vehicle. Right? The kingdom is not a value, it's a vehicle. To like the land of Israel. Justice, to to be this model nation. Right. Doing te- and I need a king who doesn't only thank God, doesn't says thank you, but acts thank you. And understands why God gives a military victory. So David uses his military victory and his strength and his and his um all the success and the symbol of that success will be the Mikdash in Yerushalayim, teaching Torah, the book of Tilim, right. giving people guidance and the whole theme of doing Mishpat and Stakat for the nation. And we find, and the best example read for homework, Tilim Ayin Bet, which is his vision of the nation, the Shlomo, about Mishpat and Stakat. Okay, so, you've been listening yeah. to Rabbi Menachem Liebtag on the Zanach Talks podcast. Thank you very much for that. Okay, thank you for interviewing me. Thank you okay. very well. Thank you for coming. I hope to have you back many times. This is the live from Alone's Food in the hills overlooking Jerusalem. This is, this is the Tanakh Talks podcast. Have a great day.